The Constellation, Episode 8, Revenge. Naima is up early. She's fed up with being here. But she has some money to hold out. And anyway, it's time to do some work. She goes around the corner to a mini supermarket where they have internet stations hidden away in the back. The guy shows her which machine she can use, wipes the keyboard and the mouse for her. First, she logs into a news site, just in case he gets nosy. She reads about the rich madrienos that have been demonstrating against the lockdown for freedom to go shopping and to party. Not in this neighbourhood. Her landlady had called them Franco's whores. She takes a USB stick out of her bag and plugs it in. She remembers saving up with Mahmoud to buy their first hard disk. It was huge and purred like a cat, 600 megabytes. On this tiny stick is 60 gigabytes of Mahmoud's research, his life work and archive. There's a copy in a bank vault too, just in case. Investigative journalism sounds exciting, but in fact, it's mostly boring shit, she thinks. Years ago, back in Sheffield, Dave had told her that every company had a double bookkeeping. She didn't believe him then. But that was what she'd been doing with Mahmoud, 
comparing the internal accounts of the company to the published list of export licenses. When there was a flow of money that didn't match up, something wasn't quite kosher. They'd also had to look at hundreds of blurred photos. That was a French plane, sure, but what arms was it carrying? Dutch or Belgian? Or were they from the UK? And how did they get to the Western Sahara? A straight export or via Saudi Arabia? She checked the company website now via a tour window so that she couldn't be traced. They were helping with the fight against COVID-19, apparently, building ventilators, as well as arming the Saudis to the teeth. But Naima wasn't really interested. It was clear that they'd been secretly exporting weapons for years, knowing that they would be used in ways that were against international law. What she was trying to do now was reverse engineering. She wanted to find out exactly where Mahmoud's mountain of information had come from, so that she could find the leak. When she found that, she'd know who was behind his death. When the lawyer had phoned her to tell her the news, she'd known immediately it wasn't suicide. She'd visited him in prison only a week before. Not that they'd been able to say much, but she'd promised to carry on the work and she told him how proud she was of him. Eight days later, he was found hanging in his cell. After a week of tears on her own and with Mahmoud's family, she vowed that she was going to get them. Not the guards or fellow prisoners or whoever it was who'd strung him up, but the people who'd ordered the killing. He told her that there was a UK security officer present at his interrogation. He'd been beaten up, of course. It was the kind of setup that had been going on for years. If a liberal Western government wants to get rid of someone, they tip off a friendly Middle Eastern government that there's a connection. It used to be to the Soviet Union, then to the Taliban or Al-Qaeda, and more recently, Daesh. Then it's a good thing for everyone if that person is locked up, or even better, just disappears. They'd seen it happen to so many people, particularly anyone involved with the Western Sahara, which Mahmoud had been reporting on for years. Walid al-Batal last year, for instance. Of course, Mahmoud couldn't really write the truth in the newspaper he worked for, but they would pass the information on to Amnesty, Human Rights Watch, Bellingcat or The Guardian. Naima realised now, looking through the contents of the USB stick, that Mahmoud must have known that this would happen. He was so meticulous with his archive, with making sure that Naima knew where to find everything. Somewhere in this bloody haystack was the needle that pointed in the right direction. Of course, she knew the general direction, but her revenge had to be pinpoint accurate as well as devastating. 
with extreme prejudice, as the Americans would say. She sighed and started making notes of IP addresses. Mary's taking part in an online panel discussion for a radio show, Life After Corona. She doesn't feel comfortable, even though she's not in the same room as the others. There's a vaguely left-wing politician, a scientist working on antibody tests, a tech entrepreneur creating a central innovation district somewhere, and Mary, who's introduced as an environmental activist and filmmaker. Along with the radio presenter, the others all agree that the world will be different. In fact, they're all quite hopeful. It's just that everyone hopes for different things. The scientist pleads for more research money and for politicians to listen to scientists in the future. The politician praises the collective spirit and wants the country to go back to work, but with good protection for the workers. Mary, though, is worried. She has the feeling that the world will be the same, only everything will be a little bit worse. Of course, there's been an increased feeling of community. Realisations about our relationship with nature has got out of hand. But, Mary says, there's enormous pressure from politicians and from big business now to reboot the economy. As if the world was just a computer that you could plug in again to get people consuming and flying and polluting again so that the rich can make money. Just look at the bailout for Schiphol, she said. The tech guy calls her cynical. We've learnt so much over the last months, over how new technology can make things possible. The tech sector needs enormous investment right now. He talks breathlessly about virus tracking apps, 5G, smart borders, robot deliveries, electric cars, online education. I mean, with the success of e-learning, you could start to ask yourself, why do we need to have all this physical infrastructure, these buildings which we need to heat in winter? You mean schools, says Mary? You want to get rid of schools? We've been conducting the online learning experiment at home too these past weeks, and I can tell you it sucks big time. And my family is privileged. Each one of us at home has their own computer. Think about the people that fall out of the boat. At the roundup at the end, the tech guy says something uplifting about his heroes, the essential workers still out there battling the virus. Exactly, says Mary. These workers who we pay virtually nothing, who are keeping us rich people alive, who are themselves dying of the virus, Will you remember them when you get to build your smart city, she asks. I don't know what planet you live on, Mary, he says. I live on Earth, says Mary. Maybe you live on Mars along with Elon Musk? When she logs out, she's a bit shaky, upset that she got so angry. But when she opens the door to the kitchen, Janneke and Tim applaud. Damn, were you listening? Oh my God, says Mary. He was so smarmy. Smarmy? asks Janneke. What does that mean?
For the last two weeks, Zed had been allowed to join in playing fretless bass with the NOS band at rehearsals. They made it into such a big deal. After listening to his demo tape, Chris had told him how talented he was, had suggested that he might replace the current bass player. But just now, he'd had such a weird talk with Chris. Chris had taken him aside after rehearsal and said he was sorry, but he was going to have to take him out of the band for the moment. He felt that Zed wasn't ready, that he was jealous of the other musicians, and that this was stopping him from being innovative. Zed didn't know what he meant at all, but okay. And then Chris had said that he felt, no, he knew that there was something in his private life that was holding him back. How was his relationship, he asked. For the last couple of months, Zed had been going out with Sarah. He felt it was going okay, but he had a suspicion that she'd only slept with him at first because she couldn't be bothered to go home after a wild party at his house, and he'd been the only single, relatively sober guy left. She'd stuck around, though, and the sex was great, so he wasn't complaining. But Chris had said, Your relationship isn't right. I feel it. It's holding you back. Maybe in bed it's all okay, but musically and intellectually, spiritually, she's not right for you. Fuck that, Zed had thought. Chris had never even met Sarah. But now the doubt had started to grow. Maybe he just got into it because it was easy. He wasn't being serious about himself, about his career as a musician, about his beliefs. Chris had gone on to ask him what he thought about Mary. Mary? Which Mary? asked Zed. She interviewed you last week. Oh yeah, the filmmaker. She was cute, he thought, but a bit distanced. 
She's really a very interesting person, very deep, said Chris. You should look for someone like that. A couple of days later, Zed got a call to go and help setting up a sound system. When he got there, Mary was doing some filming, and he'd been set up to be her assistant. It's really about sharing. We live out of one purse. Everyone contributes what they can, whether that's time, money, possessions. We're working together as a community, as a body. What really strikes me is the honesty. People really say what they think, what they feel. It can be really cathartic. Thanks, said Mary. That's perfect. She was interviewing members of the nine o'clock service for her documentary. It'd take ages to get permission. But thanks to B's persuasion, it had happened. Most of them said more or less the same thing, but there was something strange. Some people, usually the younger, newer members, were very open and enthusiastic, but the older ones, higher up, seemed to be on edge. They sounded as if they were reading from a script. The teaching is so powerful, talking about the necessity of a simple lifestyle. Caring for the less fortunate members of society, and about environmental issues, the middle-class church is always talking, but we're really doing it. And the services, well, it's the best dance night in Sheffield. Mary was ushered into another space to set up her camera, while Chris's assistants hung up a curtain with strange symbols on it and busied themselves with the lighting. Zed, the guy with the quiff. Was trying to help with the microphones and getting in the way. He seemed overly keen. She thought. She'd never had so much help before. The assistants were nervous and kept looking at their watches. One of them stood in front, while the others adjusted the light, looking in the camera. Want to get the best possible shot for Chris? Of course," said Mary, thinking that this was going a bit too far. It was her film after all, and they were acting like yuppies shooting an advertising campaign. There was some whispering, and then they all seemed to melt away into the shadows. Chris had arrived. So,、uh, should I should I stand like this? He also seemed nervous, not quite the person she knew from the services. And、um, John went through some of the questions, and there are some that I, I don't want to answer. They're boring. More something for the trustees.、Um, Okay," said Mary, thinking, "This is going well already." But then he seemed to relax. Mary got him to tell a little of the history of the nine o'clock service, how they'd been a community before they started the services at St Thomas's, how one of his leaders had had a vision of a church filled with video screens and music and performance art, that this was a message from God, was what they had to create, and he said. What's going on here at St Tom's is just the beginning. You've been to the services, Mary," he said. "You've seen how full it is. We have to take it to the next level. Really bring it to the people." "Who are the people?" Mary asked. Chris had to think. "The kids who are into music but don't know God. The people who feel they don't fit into the normal church. The poor, working-class youth." "Hang on a minute," said Mary, swinging into interview mode. 
isn't this rave scene really middle class? I mean, it's not the same scene as the workers down the pub at the corner who listen to Def Leppard on the jukebox, or the poor black community. How do you see yourselves reaching those people? Chris glared at her, and then looked at his feet. When he looked up again, he had a smile on his face. You're right, they're very important questions, and we should be asking ourselves these questions. You know what your problem is? Uh, do I have a problem? asked Mary. Your problem is that you hide behind your camera. You've been hanging around us for weeks, not getting involved. What's holding you back? Maybe I'm trying to keep my professional distance, said Mary. Fuck that, said Chris. Come away from the camera. He sat down in a sofa. Come and sit down. Mary sat down beside Chris, feeling very uncomfortable. Here was the man that the others seemed so much in awe of, and here she was on the sofa with him. He got up, knelt in front of her, and placed his head in her lap. Mary froze. What the fuck was going on here? Could you give me a massage? asked Chris. Mary felt choked. She couldn't breathe. No, she managed to say. Okay, said Chris, and stood up as if nothing had happened. So I guess we're done with the interview then. I've got to go and check out the band rehearsal. Yes, I think I've got enough, said Mary, as if nothing had happened. Great, it's really important that you're making this. The world needs to know about us, Mary. You just need to... To what? He stared intensely at Mary. She felt that he could see right through her. You need to get rid of some of your blocks. Just now, what I did, that was testing you. I feel that you're blocked, spiritually and sexually. You need to realise that what you have here, all around you, within this community, is a gift. You just need to open it. I know that you and B are, well, fond of each other, but I know her better than you ever will, and I know that it won't work out between you. I'm sorry. And with that, he left the room. Mary stayed sitting on the sofa, in shock. What just happened? she thought. Later, when she realised she'd left the camera on, she replayed it to make sure she wasn't dreaming. Chris had been careful to sit out of shot, but you could hear everything that he said. In Brussels, Dave walks up the hill to Pocher to do some shopping. There's a couple of guys walking behind him silently. For a moment, he thinks he's being followed, but they disappear around a corner.
minced lamb, some vegetables, fresh herbs, then on to Place Collignon to the wine shop for a bottle. Thank God for credit cards, he thinks. It's almost getting dark as he comes back to the tower. As he rounds the corner, he sees two guys standing in the shadows. The same guys. Fuck. He knows what to do. Dave walks past, ignoring them. Then, before they get a chance, he swings his carrier bag with the wine bottle. It makes a crunching sound as it connects with the head of the taller man who tumbles into a bush. Dave turns to face the other, ready to punch. Then the other raises a baseball bat. Hospital, thinks Dave. They're not going to kill me, but this means hospital. Thank you.